You're listening to teaching from Midtown Fellowship, a Jesus-centered family on mission in Columbia, South Carolina. If you're interested in finding out more about us, our family of churches, or how to partner with us, go to midtowncolumbia.com. If you have a Bible, you can go ahead and turn to Matthew chapter 2. We'll be in that same passage that Delisha just read for us. Again, we'll be in Matthew chapter 2. We'll be starting at verse 1. And starting at verse 1, we'll be continuing in our Give series, as is our custom. This will be week 3. If you've been with us, you know Matthew has been setting us up and really just telling us and showing us how Jesus, coming as a baby, was coming to be king. We see that from the very first verse in the book of Matthew that we ran a couple weeks ago when he calls Jesus the son of David. He is showing that Jesus comes from a royal lineage and is worthy of being king of God's people and to reign forever. One of the things that I think is important for us is to make sure we understand exactly what does that mean, that Jesus is going to be king. At this time, the world, when this was written, the world was ruled largely by kings. There was usually an emperor that, that, that ruled most of the known world, and then empires would rise, empires would fall, and different kings would take over and lead. Our world doesn't work in that way, in the same way today, and especially our, our society does. And so I want to make sure we understand what does it mean for us that Jesus is king, and how should we respond to him being king? We're going to be able to look at a couple different responses in the Bible today to Jesus being king. And one of the things that I want to, one of the points I want to make today is there's really only two responses to a king. There's really only two. I think oftentimes we, we think there are a few different ways that we might respond to a king. I want to make the point from the scriptures today that there's really only two responses that one can have to a king. And we'll see it in the text today in Matthew chapter 2. We'll get it started at verse 1. I'll just read through it and then explain a little bit of what's going on as I go through the passage. Verse 1 reads, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, Behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard of this, he was troubled and all of Jerusalem with him. So these wise men come from the east to where the Jews are here in, in Jerusalem and in Israel at the time, apparently they have heard about the prophecies. Maybe there were some of the, the, the God's people, some of the Israelites that had been exiled many, many, many years ago, and they still remember the prophecy. For that, perhaps that's who it is that's coming back. But anyway, God has showed them through a star that the king, the prophesied king of the Jews, Jesus, had been born. So they come traveling and the assumption here is that they're not extremely familiar with the area with Israel. That's not where they are from. So they go to Jerusalem, which is the capital city of Israel at that time. And that's where Herod is. And Herod is currently the king that is reigning over the Jews. So when they get there and ask about this king who was to be born king of the Jews, it says that Herod, when he heard this, he was troubled and all of Jerusalem with him was also troubled. So that, that phrase, all of Jerusalem with him, is likely a phrase referring to the leadership and the leadership structure that is currently there in Jerusalem, those leading alongside Herod and those leading under him. For example, if it says the president and the White House are troubled by 
whatever the situation is. They're, t- they're not saying necessarily everyone that ever come to that building, but they're, they're talking about the president and his cabinet and the leaders that are there with him. Matthew is saying when he says all of Jerusalem is troubled with him, he's saying this news of this new king being born is troubling the leadership that's established there in Jerusalem, the capital city of Israel. Let's keep reading verse 4. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where Christ was to be born. They told him in Bethlehem of Judea, for it is for so it is written by the prophet. And here they quote a, a verse out of Micah says, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. So Herod is not Jewish, right? He's not a descendant of Israel. So when they ask him, hey, where is this this king of the Jews that that has been born? He goes and gets the scribes. He gets the religious leaders that are Jews to come into him. And he asks the question like, hey, where this king that's prophesied, where is he going to be born? Because he's he's an outsider leading over the Jews. And they tell him, they quote Micah, and they say he's supposed to come from Bethlehem. Verse 7, then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And when he sent them to Bethlehem, sorry, and then and he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. So then after Herod knows, okay, he's supposed to be born in Bethlehem, then Herod goes to the wise men who saw the star when he was born, and they said, He asked, Okay, well, when did you see the star? Like when, when did the star appear? He's trying to get a feel for how old uh, this king that has been born, king of the Jews, how old he might be at this time. And so then he goes and gets the wise man. He says, all right, you go search diligently for him. Go find him and then let me know so I can come and worship him right alongside you. We'll continue on in verse 9. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Rejoice exceedingly with great joy. You ever seen somebody that's too happy about something? Something happened, it's like you just extra, like you, you're a little bit too happy about what's going on than you should be. This is, that's what this, this verse is saying when he says they rejoice exceedingly with great joy. So it says that he rejoiced, so they're excited, they're excited. Then he used the word exceedingly, which means more than enough or abundantly. And then it says they rejoice abundantly with great joy. Matthew is saying they, they are extra in their celebration. They are so excited about this king that has been born. Verse 11. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. So, so they get to him and they, they, they are honoring him as a king. This is what one might do before a king. You bow down, you get on your knees, any gifts that you might have to show your love and respect to the king, you, you give that to a king. So they're, they're treating him like the king that he is prophesied to be. Verse 12. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed, they departed to their own country by another way. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. Verse 16. Then Herod, when I saw, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious and sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem 
and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time he had ascertained from the wise men. So in that last chunk that we read, God warns the wise men and Joseph about Herod. Wise men, don't go back to Herod. Joseph, Herod is about to try to kill your son. Get your family and leave. You need to run away. The wise men don't go back to Herod. Herod finds out he's been tricked and he leads in this genocide where he kills. He sends his soldiers into Bethlehem as hitmen, as assassins. And he kills all of the boys in Bethlehem and in that region who are two years old and under. I mean, he sends soldiers ripping children out of the arms of of mothers and fathers because he is seeking to kill and destroy Jesus. Cannot imagine living in this time. It's an unspeakably horrible event. Herod uses his power to do extreme harm to so many children and families. We have to ask ourselves a question. What would make Herod do this? Right, so he, he's in his palace assuming, he's, he, he's ruling, he's reigning, there's this prophecy, there's these men that come looking for this one who's going to be king of the Jews, and all of a sudden Herod just, he just loses it, he just, and he sends his soldiers in to kill all the boys under two years old. Why would he do this? Why would he hate Jesus so much that it would be worth all of the casualties in his pursuit to destroy him? Herod was a ruler. He was a, a king. He was king in Jerusalem. That was his territory. He had control. He was ruling in the Roman government over the Jews. One thing that was common practice at this time was for rulers to destroy any and all threats to their kingdom. Oftentimes, if there was a battle between two armies, and in that time, the the kings would lead their armies in battle for for their kingdoms. Oftentimes, if one king would defeat the other king or defeat the other nation, they would have the, the defeated king killed because he was seen as a threat to the current regime that was established. Because if anyone might be able to overthrow the current regime, it's the the one who was a king that had many people following him. And oftentimes after they win a battle, the the, the kingdom that they defeat now gets grafted into their kingdom. So they don't want that king to still be there because if he's there, then maybe he'll lead an insurrection or some type of treason against the current king that is reigning. So they would oftentimes kill the weaker king or the king whose army was defeated in battle. The idea is to go ahead and eliminate the threat before you have to wage an all-out war. So anyone that seems to be a threat, a king would often do whatever he had to do to eliminate that threat, to kill or destroy that threat. There's a phrase, some of you have heard me say it before, it's what do you call it when you have two kings claiming the same territory? It's called war. That is what happens when, you, when that is the case. And so Herod is, is unleashing all-out war on Jesus because he is prophesied to be the king of the Jews. And Herod is not ready to allow another king on his territory. He does everything he can. He tries to find when Jesus, when Jesus was born, how old Jesus is. He tries to find where Jesus is so that he can eliminate him and get rid of this threat to his kingdom. See, if the the prophecy would have been that Jesus was was going to be anything other than a king, Herod wouldn't have had any problems with him. 
It would have been okay if he, if he was going to be, you know, obviously he was a carpenter. So if, it was just, if the prophecy was only that he would be a carpenter, Herod would have been fine with that. But the fact that Jesus was prophesied to be king, the fact that he will claim to be king, means that Herod can no longer be neutral about Jesus. He cannot be neutral. Either he wants Jesus to be on the throne or he wants himself to be on the throne. He can't be neutral because this Jesus was prophesied to be king, to be reign. He can no longer be indifferent. Herod is a king and Jesus is a king. The reality of Jesus' identity as a king creates this great conflict within Herod. The fact that Jesus was prophesied to come and rule over the Jews creates this inner conflict. He doesn't want Jesus on the throne because then he won't be on the throne. He doesn't want Jesus to rule over him because that would mean that he can't rule anymore, that he can't have control possibly over his life anymore, and that he wouldn't have his life go the way he envisioned it to go or the way he desired it to go. Ultimately, Herod has decided that Jesus ruling over him would cost him more than he's willing to pay that it will cost him too much. And if we're honest with ourselves, we do the same thing and we feel the same way, don't we? It doesn't always look the same for us as it does for Herod, but we also oftentimes don't want Jesus to be king. We also, we desire to wear the crown just as much as Herod does. And we desire to be rulers over our lives. And the fact that Jesus claims kingship as a part of his identity means we can no longer be neutral about Jesus either. See, the reality is there are a lot of people that believe that they just think that Jesus is just okay, right? I don't really necessarily think he's Lord. I don't really submit to him, and I'm not really 100% against him is the way people believe. But what I'm saying today is that is actually not an option. When someone claims to be king, you either believe that they should be king or you don't. You either believe that they should be the one ruling and they should be the one calling the shots, or you don't. Anybody who is not for the king is an enemy of the king. That's the way kingship works. I said I wanted to explain it because we're not used to living in, in this type of time. See, right now we live, in, we live in an area where we can share difference of opinions that we have on political views. That's not the way they did things. You might get beheaded for talking down about the king at this time. Either you are a friend or a foe of the king. We are a lot like Herod. We claim authority over the same territory as the king of all creation, our Lord Jesus Christ. And the degree to which we seek to claim authority over our own lives is the degree to which we wage war against the king of all creation, our Lord Jesus. We are like Herod. Jesus' kingship creates this great conflict in us as well as we seek to remain on the throne, as we seek to continue to wear our crowns. And this, for us, oftentimes, it looks like outright rebellion. We want control over ourselves. We want control over how we use our time. So we try to get rid of Jesus when we, anytime that we prioritize what we desire over what he desires. We want control over our own sex lives. So we try to get rid of Jesus and any guidance or any type of direction that he tries to give us in regards to sex. We want to get rid of Jesus and have control over our money. So we try to get rid of anything that he has to say that might cause us to do anything with our resources, our possessions, and our money that we do not prefer. So we look at things like funding the kingdom work through the local church as optional, while things like entertainment, the pair of shoes that we desire is non-negotiable. We want to get rid of Jesus. We don't like him reigning over 
us. And I'm not saying we can't spend money on things we like. I'm saying that if our use of money is reflective of a heart that thinks it ultimately belongs to us and not Jesus, then that is sin. Then that is sin. Then that is us saying, no, 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 I don't want you to be king. Let's push Jesus out of the way. Let's move him to the side because he is costing me too much. I want to continue to reign on my throne. Whatever area in your life that you find yourself slow to repent is an area in which you have decided to get rid of Jesus because you have decided that Jesus reigning in your life will just cost you too much. It's too costly. We want to get rid of Jesus because if, we, if Jesus rules, then we won't be able to rule our own lives. We won't have control over our lives. Our lives might not go the way that we envision and the way that we desire for them to go. So oftentimes we just outright rebel and do whatever we want to do. This is what some of y'all's college life looked like. Outright, open rebellion against him. But sometimes it's, sometimes it's a little different than that. Sometimes it's not outright rebellion for everyone can see. Sometimes it looks more like what Herod looks like in verse 7 and verse 8. Let me read those again. It says, Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. So Herod was waging war with Jesus and disguising it as worship. He was waging war. He was seeking information that he might destroy Jesus, that he might get rid of Jesus and disguising it as worship. He desired for the good church folk in Jerusalem, the scribes, the Pharisees, the Israelites, to think that he was more holy than he actually was when what he really wanted was to get rid of Jesus. This is what our rebellion sometimes looks like. Let me get practical. So when we're in our life group meetings and we're in our engage the heart when we're out engaged the hard times, and for anyone who might not be very familiar with what we do in our church, so James chapter 5, verse 16 tells us to confess our sins to one another and pray for one another that we might be healed. And so that's something that we practice on a consistent basis, that we want to be honest about our strengths, about our weaknesses, the highs, the lows, every bit of it, that we might grow in our faith and in our love for Christ. And this is something that we practice, and as members, it's something that we have agreed to because we find it to be extremely important. Now, there are often times when the one thing that we need to confess the most is the one thing we don't confess. I'm talking about that thing. I'm talking about the thing that you've been struggling with the most, and so it's causing maybe the most shame in your heart in the way that you view yourself. So that's the thing that you actually need the most prayer about, need the most encouragement about, and that's the one thing that we don't want to share with others. And so we come across as more holy and more mature than we actually are. So, and oftentimes, and oftentimes the issue is not only that we feel the shame, but oftentimes we just don't want to let go of the sin. And if we confess it and we share it, now people are going to try to hold us accountable. Now we might actually have to try to fight against it, which we don't want to do. So we hide it to look holy when we're actually trying to get rid of Jesus. We're waging war with him and disguising it as worship. And disguising it as worship. This is what Herod is doing. This is what rebellion often looks like. Right? Herod is in Israel. He's in Jerusalem. This is a, a, a very much a conservative religious place, a religious area. It looks good for him to look like he wants to do the religious thing. 
That looks good for him because he's in this space. And obviously, as us, as members of a church, it might look good to us. And we think it looks good if we appear, appear more holy or more mature than we actually are. False worship is war against the king. False worship is war. It is wanting to get rid of. It is wanting to push aside. And the reason that, again, that you can't be neutral is because he claims to be king. He says, no, if you are here in my territory, you follow me. Your money, that's mine. Your life, that's mine. Your thought life, that's mine. Your heart, that's mine. Everything in this world, everything that is a part of you is mine. That's the claim he's making when he says he's king. So anything that we refuse, anytime we push back against that, we're saying, no, you don't get to be king here. Which means you're saying you're king, which means you're now waging war against our God. This is what Herod is doing. He doesn't want to give up the throne. He doesn't want Jesus reigning. Underneath it all is the reality that we believe that Jesus coming to be king, what we celebrate as Christmas, is more so news of an enemy coming to harm us than we believe it is good news of a long-awaited king that's coming to save us. When we wage war against him, when we decide we don't want to follow him as king, it's because we actually believe that his coming kingdom is coming to take more from us than it's coming to give us. We believe that his reign is primarily taking good things from us, and so we don't receive him as king as good news like Herod. He didn't receive it as good news. We don't receive it as good news. Instead, we receive it as the news of an enemy that is coming to conquer us. So we treat Jesus as an enemy and fight against him instead of treating him as a savior that we want to fight alongside. Now, in this passage, there's another response that Jesus said there were two. And the response of the wise men is set up in direct opposition to the response of Herod. They respond extremely differently. They, they diligently sought Jesus. They traveled from afar. They, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy when the, when the star moved to right above where Jesus was. They were incredibly glad to be able to find him. And then when they get, him, get to him, they worship him as king. So why did they respond differently from Herod? We have two stark Starkly different responses to Jesus coming to be king. Matthew has said at this point from the very beginning of his gospel that Jesus is king. And now he's given us the two responses that people have in response to his kingship. We have the wise men who rejoice at the idea of coming to him and worship him, worshiping him. And we have Herod who wants to kill and get rid of Jesus. Either we are like the wise men and we love the fact that he's king. And we want to seek him, and he gives us great extra joy, and we worship him. Or we're like Herod, and we see him more as a threat than a savior. We see, we see his kingdom for what it takes away from us and not what it gives to us and the rest of the world. And this is very difficult for us because we currently live in a culture that celebrates the pushing off of authority. We live in a culture that will congratulate you for pushing off other people's expectations. We live in a culture that considers it to be normal for you to not allow what other people or anyone else wants you to do to actually affect you. We, we see it as brave for us to do the things that we want to do. So we're in a difficult situation because Jesus claims to be king, because Jesus is the son of David, and his throne will last forever. So what's the difference between the wise men and Herod? I believe it's, I believe it's so simple that it's incredibly profound. They aren't in competition with Jesus for a throne. 
They're not in competition for the throne with Jesus. So they're able to see him for who he actually is. I want to make a point here. Oftentimes the people that you know of that have this like, like hate against Jesus, like this hate against Christianity, they might say it's an intellectual problem. Oh, I just can't believe in something that I can't see. Generally speaking, that's not the problem. The problem is they don't want Jesus. People will give you a bunch of smoke screens and tell you a lot of different reasons for why they don't want to follow Jesus, why they don't want to worship him. But at the end of the day, oftentimes, they just don't want him to rule their life. They just don't want to have to submit to his authority. They don't want him to be king. And we see with this as wise men, sorry, when we see with the example of the wise men compared to what Herod did, there's two options. There's kill Jesus or crown Jesus. We either kill Jesus, we either want to get rid of him, we either want to kill him, or we want to crown him. Either we believe that him reigning and being on the throne is the best thing for us and the best thing for everybody, or we think he doesn't need to be king and he needs to be removed. And the way you get rid of a king is through war. That is the way they would get rid of a king in that time. One question now that I believe we need to ask, an incredibly important one, is how do we grow in being more like the wise men and less like Herod? How do we move forward now? Okay, we've understood, okay, there's two different ways to respond. And in different areas of our lives, we respond in different ways. How do we grow? How do we move towards being like the wise men who rejoice at the idea of him being king, who rejoice at the idea of him coming, being a savior? How do we get there? We need to come to a deep knowledge. I'll explain what I mean by that. A deep knowledge of the truth that Jesus is the one that needs to be the king. We need to come to a great depth of knowledge in the truth that Jesus is the one who should be king and not us. We must come to embrace this, to accept this, to celebrate this, that he is the trustworthy one. We need to see it deeply, so deeply that we desire him to be king and not us. I one of the things I always want to recommend is that we spend time meditating on the word of God, that we will go to the scriptures and see his loving kindness in verses like Psalm 103, verse 10 through 13. It says, he has not dealt with us according to our sins or repaid us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his loving devotion to those who fear him. And as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. We need to see these truths about our God and remind ourselves, no, he is the one that is worthy to be king. He who has freed us from the the stain of our transgressions. We need to see his majesty like in Philippians chapter 2, verses 9 through 11. It says, therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory, excuse me, of God the Father. We need to go in his word and see his sovereignty in verses like Romans chapter 8, verse 28, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. We need to look in the scriptures and see his steadfast love as he continues to endure with Israel, his people, even though for years on top of years on top of years, they rejected him and turned away from him. We need to see his faithfulness and that he is the God that continues to keep his covenant with those who have broken their covenant against him. 
We need to go to the scriptures and see his victory in verses like 1 Corinthians chapter 15, 54 through 57. It says, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. We need to see him as he actually is. We need to look in the scriptures and see who this king is and remember that he is the one worthy of the throne. And one of, the, one of the, my favorite things that reveals to me that he's worthy is we see his grace. See, I said a little bit earlier that the things that kings would do when they would come in, if they were stronger, if they had more might than the other king, then they would kill the weaker king. The king that they defeat, the king that couldn't fight against them and withstand them, they would kill that king so that they could build and grow their kingdom. But our Savior, Jesus Christ, does the exact opposite. He is the king. We are the smaller, lesser kings that cannot withstand him, that cannot defeat him, and yet we wage war against him. And instead of killing us, he orchestrates his own death that we might be welcomed into his kingdom. He is the one that deserves the throne. He's the one that deserves the throne. Because we are, were threats, so to speak, to his kingdom. We chose to go against him. We rebelled against him. We said, no, we don't want you to be king. But he comes in and says, okay, instead of killing you as you deserve, I will die in your place, reveal to you my love and my grace, and welcome you with open arms into my kingdom. He deserves the throne. Yes. He deserves that we take off our crowns and throw them at his feet and say, you are worthy. You are more powerful. You are stronger. You are more loving. You are more trustworthy than I am. Your plans are good. Your plans are right. You deserve to be the king. And we need to take an honest look at ourselves, and we need to remember that we don't compare to him. We don't compare to him. We've sinned. He's righteous. We've messed up. He's perfect. We've taken some losses. He's never been defeated. We can't make our lives go the way that we want them, and he has been sovereignly controlling the universe for all eternity. We're fickle, and his love is consistent. He is 100% faithful, and his love is steadfast, and it is everlasting. And not only, not only do we not deserve to be king, but things are just better when he's running things. Things are better when he is running things than when we are running things. One of the things that came to mind is I was thinking about how do we move towards being like the wise men here who, who don't have a begrudging worship, right? They, 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 don't just, they don't just come to understand who Jesus is and they're supposed to be king and say, yeah, okay, I'm supposed to follow you, so let me do my religious duties, right? That's, that's not their response. How do we move towards this? One of the things that started becoming real apparent to me not too long after I got married uh, was that my wife, she's a school teacher, she has a degree in education, and she would talk to me about the things that, how much students were improving in her class, and I could always just like hear the passion in her voice for, for children and educating children and all of that, and I was, and I, if you would have asked me, I would say, yeah, she's a, she's a good teacher, she's good, her students are making progress uh, more than one grade level while in her class, and I thought that that was a, a great thing, and I would say, yeah, she's a, she's a good teacher, and so, and then, our boys were born, our twins were born, and then a little bit after that, she comes home and starts um, being in our home, not, not going to school, not teaching, that type of thing, being in our home full-time and working with our children. And I start coming home, and my boys start teaching me stuff and asking me questions. Like, they, they quizzing me to see if I'm on their level with the things that they've learned, right? This, this is what my boys start doing to me. And so I start asking them questions, and their understanding of the things that my wife was teaching them 
was blowing me away. I mean, it was like, it was incredible to me. Matter of fact, I noticed this on my Facebook timeline, a post, this is a post that I wrote two years ago, this past Thursday, this past Thursday, two years ago, this is what I wrote. The way my wife skillfully, consistently, and relentlessly teaches our boys blows me away over and over again. So after consistently, on my part, witnessing how she teaches them, the fruit that was coming as a result of it took me from a place of saying, yeah, she's a pretty good teacher, to being blown away. It's like, I can't believe what is going on in my living room. If we want to move from a place of just begrudging worship of Jesus and just a mental acknowledgement that Jesus is the one that should be king, we need consistent exposure to who he is and the fruit of what he does that we might continue to grow in appreciation and not just have a mental understanding of his goodness, but an experiential knowledge of how good he actually is and that he deserves to be king, that we might rejoice in his kingship. We need consistent exposure. You need to be in your Bible meditating on the word of God, seeing his character over and over and over again. You need to be doing it tomorrow and Tuesday and Wednesday and every day of our lives meditating on who he is. Otherwise, we might arrive at the foolish conclusion that we should be king over him. If we're not seeing his goodness over and over and over again, we might arrive at the conclusion that we deserve the crown and that we should be on the throne and that Jesus should be submitting to us. But as we continue to remind ourselves of his goodness, to expose ourselves to his greatness and see how majestic he is, we can continue to grow in a depth of knowledge, an experiential knowledge of how good and how worthy he actually is. In our church services to try to remind us over and over again of how great our God is, we do a number of things. We do things like we sing songs about how good God is. We have times of scripture reading where we just put our eyes on the scriptures that show us how good God is. Obviously, we proclaim the word of God over and over again, but we also partake in communion as a reminder of how good our God is, as a reminder that he's the one that deserves to be king and not us, that the one who was prophesied king of the Jews born in Bethlehem is worthy of the throne because he came and he shed his blood for us that we might be welcomed into his kingdom that those who were his enemies have become his friends because of his death on the cross in our place. If you're a follower of Jesus in the room, even if you're not a member of our church, we would love for you to partake in communion right along with us after I open the communion table in just a moment. If you're not a follower of Jesus, this is one of the very few things we ask that you not partake in. This is something that Jesus set up in a way that's very sacred for his followers, for his disciples as we proclaim his death until he returns for us. The broken bread just represents Jesus' body that was broken on our behalf, and the juice that we dip it in represents his blood that was shed for us. I'll pray for us, and then we'll open up the communion table. Father, we thank you for your love. We thank you for your goodness. We thank you that you have proven yourself to be trustworthy, that we don't have to guess whether or not you're worthy of the throne, whether or not you're worthy to be king. You have proven that already. You have shown yourself to be a worthy king that dies for his enemies, that we might be with you. Father, will you help us to bear that in mind, to remember that as we partake in communion today? It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen.